Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top-shelf equipment and designers for broadcast, concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know that this is your most important event. It is their goal to make you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN magazine, LD at Large. I hope you're all enjoying. I am in my office again, locked into my small little office of isolation. I'm looking out the window and it is actually snowing up here in Canada, which is really weird. I was out in shorts and bare feet yesterday. Uh, today was a really good day to reach out to my good friend, Dan Hadley. He is a production designer with such clients as Foo Fighter and Tenacious D. How's it going today, buddy? It's going quite well. It's very good. It's not, There's not snow falling. There's actually uh, oranges and avocados falling. Ooh. <laughs> I, I love me some good avocados. Yeah, it's uh, it's a special thing. The The... the Avocado trees only give off every other year, so for about two months every other year, I have a very shiny coat. I got to see that you had a giant bowl of them the other day on your front porch. Yeah, the ones that I'm able to salvage from the squirrels, who I have an ongoing battle with. (laughs) Ah, See, we're having the opposite. I'm actually encouraging the squirrels, and apparently you're, you're battling them. I will send you mine. If I catch them, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if my squirrels reject your squirrels. You're like, yeah, freaking California squirrels. They totally would. My squirrels would be like, how do I get out of here? Do I take the 402 to the. <laughs> They're probably so excited, too. That I would imagine the squirrels have just uh, figured that they've taken over the world right now. There's nobody around to stop them from stealing anything. I would imagine. Yeah. Just, did all the people just go extinct? What? Where did all the people go? Yeah, I mean, I live really close to Griffith Park, which is a, a very, uh, I think, the biggest urban wilderness in the world or in the the country. We have, uh, you know, there's even a mountain lion that lives up there. P twenty two is his name. We haven't quite gotten deer in the neighborhood yet, but definitely coyotes. You know, skunks, possums, raccoons, all the all the regular city dwelling creatures. But the coyotes I have seen closer in now than uh, than normal. As an animal lover, stuff like this just makes me very happy. I I love hearing about animals starting to return to their equilibrium with where they belong. And yeah, yeah, that's nice. And it's also nice. I saw an article that said that the uh, that all the shelters in New York City were were empty because all the pets had been adopted. I don't know if that was. As they should uh, if be. That's still true. Yeah, uh, I, I was be. lucky enough to get a, a uh, to have an application accepted, and I've been fostering a kitten for the last month. What a sweetheart! It's what the, a sweetheart uh, saving me. Except I have to give her back tomorrow, and I'm very sad about it. Oh, where where would the kitten have to go to? Where <laughs> she's going to go get adopted to her forever home? Uh, because you know, being a touring person. Allegedly, if that's still a thing, <laughs> a um, then uh, you know I can't can't have a permanent cat. Uh, mm-hmm. It's always been the deal. I knew I knew it going in, but of course, now that it time is coming to give her back, it's going to break my heart. Which is how uh, it should be. Just how it should be. The it would suck if I rock. if I didn't if I weren't upset. If I weren't upset about having to give her back, then that would just be terrible. The schedule of rock rarely allows for for pets. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things we sacrifice. Uh, When you are touring, what is your schedule like? Uh, I know with Foo Fighters, I would imagine you're out for fairly long lengths of time. Yeah, uh, they do dictate the rest of my schedule. They're 
the free time with them is the only time that I'm available to go out with other acts. And sometimes that lines up incredibly well. Last year, it lined up really well with Tenacious D, the guitar tech, Sean Cox, who also does both bands. He and I would basically do two weeks of Foos, then have four days off and then do two weeks of Tenacious D and then have three days off and two weeks of Foos. Pretty, pretty uh, serendipitous. Uh, you know, and it took, and for the last 20 years, I've been on the road for 200 days a year. So this is an unprecedented amount of time at home. I, I feel you on that one. My, my suitcase is in the closet for the first time. Uh, yeah, I to, yeah. I had to make room in my closet because that's not where my suitcase goes. It just yeah. goes <laughs> yep. It just goes on the floor and then, then the clothes come out, they go into the laundry and then the clothes go back in and then, the, <laughs> yep. and then it goes back into my truck. So both of those bands are relatively young people. I would imagine they can still keep you out for uh, weeks at a time. They can still do three, three in a row, four in a row if they, if they were so inclined. Uh, Tenacious D definitely does. Uh, Foo Fighters not so much. And uh, and they tend to not go out for more than three weeks, I would say, anymore. Okay. Uh, which, for the crew, sometimes extends to four if we have some prep time in the beginning or whatnot. But yeah, the, the foos have a pretty family-friendly schedule for their own selves. And then uh, and Tenacious D typically only does a couple of weeks at a time uh, for family stuff and also to work around Jack's uh, film schedule. Yeah, I mean, they got their start in the, uh, what, late 90s? Yeah. On, uh, oh my God. on HBO. With, uh, that was that they had their own ago. shorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, on Mr. Show with Bob and David. Oh, man. Had, had some stuff on there. And, and how long have you been with Tenacious D? Uh, this is my 20th year. So since 2001 was the first time I got to work with them. Wow. And when yeah. you started, how, how big how big was a tour for them then? Twenty five people, five, five people. people. Yep, myself, tour manager, the uh, guitar tech slash production manager, and uh, Jack and Kyle. And now, now, what are we like? Maybe ten. Okay, they keep it very tight. The bass player uh, is also the. Uh, production manager and tour manager uh, and the recording engineer for their <laughs> records. Uh, he's the most amazing human, John Spiker. He's absolutely amazing. If he weren't such a great bass player, I would actually be trying to hire him as production manager for, for tours. He's just wonderful. Those are some very uh, opposing hats to be wearing there. That's, that's impressive. Yeah. He even uh, at, at the beginning of a show, Last year, two years ago, he fell off the stage as he was walking across the back of it to get to position, landed on his back. You know the little fins off the side of your vertebrae? Yeah. Uh, he fractured two of those. Did not stop the show, did not do anything different. Did the show, you wouldn't have known it. As much as people love Dave and his broken leg story, uh, John Spiker actually broke his back and did the show. Wow. And the rest Spiker's, of the tour. I, guess, I would imagine Spiker just wasn't being filmed at the time, whereas Dave Grohl got to yeah. be <laughs> downstage center. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, were you there for that one? Were you there for the leg break? Absolutely. That was in Scandinavia, Sweden? It was in Sweden, in uh, Gothenburg. That is legendary. It was stunning. It was uh, <laughs> the most incredible part was in the middle of the show, he would come down to the end of the runway and do an acoustic bit. We, we didn't know what was ha- going to be happening. If he was, when he came back out initially, we were like, okay, this is going to be like three songs and he's going to bail. But no, he kept do- doing the show. And then he even got Chris and Pat to walk him down to the end of the ramp, which is like 160 feet. He walked with his new cast and new crutches, new, like an hour old, and uh, walked that whole way and did the acoustic bit at the end of the ramp. And so when he, and the ramp went between audio and light in front of house. And when he walked between us, we all just gave him our own little FOH standing ovation. Wow. 
yeah, it was, uh, yeah, none of us are ever allowed to call in sick ever again. <laughs> how, how long was the show delayed for? Probably about a half an hour. It, it was in two separate things. It's two separate things. He fell off, went off stage, came back with a temporary cast as somebody was going across town to get a better cast, an inflatable one, I think. And then, uh, then he went off stage to get that done. His ankle was also dislocated. So they had to reset that ankle oh my God. at the end of a broken leg. If you've ever seen an ankle be relocated, it's already a painful enough procedure. But when you have a floppy bit that's supposed to be a rigid bit, it's uh, pretty, <laughs> it's a compounding. The Swedish paramedics must have been so confused. They're like, no, clearly we're taking you to the hospital. And this yeah, crazy yeah. long-haired American just going like, no, no, yep. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. And we were all just, we were all so astounded. Just and, kept doing it. Their, their first okay. response was like, no, no, no. It's, it's, you have universal health care up here. We're, we're, we're right. <laughs> no, you don't have to go back to work. You don't have to pay. <laughs> you, can, you can go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> their response would be like, well, no, we'll just, we'll take care of you. And he's like, no, I'm going right back to work. And you're going to, you're going to reset my ankle on stage if I have to. Yeah. Yeah. Basically that. I mean, the, the paramedics stood there and while they were waiting for the cast, there was one guy, uh, Johan, the doctor, who held his foot while he was playing. He just he was just sat there and held it because there was no cast at that point. <laughs> I mean, it's all the video is all out there on the Internet and stuff. It's yeah. Uh, the few times that I've seen Dave Grohl at festivals, I see him interacting with everybody. I would imagine he is in real life, the same way he is on stage. He's kind of a little butterfly going around talking to everybody, hanging out and actually a genuinely wonderful human being. Yep. Yeah. Very much what you see is what you get. Yeah. Nobody has enough energy to keep up an artifice like that. It's, it's got to come from a real place. Right on. That is, uh, it's really inspiring to know that people who get that big are still real human beings and still, able to be relatable yeah well and it's interesting because it it makes my job a little bit interesting in that the uh the the best thing that is the best thing about it uh and him and the band and that's what you have to show that's the thing that you need to showcase is that connection that's what people are there for so it's not about having the coolest production Mm-hmm. You know, people are people react more when they go into a club show with with no production, or when the when the rig goes down and they just stand there and play as a rock band without anything going on with the house lights on uh, because a storm is taking it out. I think that happened in Buenos Aires in 2015. We had maybe six lights working in the rig after a deluge. So it kind of undercuts my importance, I guess, because you're not doing this because it's all driven from that. Then we don't have as much latitude, I think, to to drive anything with lighting and with content and stuff. All of our stuff has to be completely reactive to to him Mm -hmm. um, or to the to the band and the music, which. Uh, which in one respect is the way I think it should be for live music. But then there are bands that aren't, that that's not the thing. The thing is the show and that's not better or worse. It's just different, you know, but we're not going to do any super immersive content that, uh, you know, that tries to transport you to a different place because we, the place we want you to be is there with the band and with the people who are around you. That is a, a small metaphor for what is really going on there is that basically the entire tour is based on the personality of the artist from what they're putting out to the audience as well as what they're putting out to the crew. I find that even if I have almost zero interaction with the headline artist, I get a sense of their atmosphere throughout the crew i mean it, it all comes downhill from from the artist so basically if the artist is stressed or if they're selfish then 
the tour manager is going to be like that. And then if the tour manager is in a bad mood, the technical director is going to be in a bad mood and so on. And it just, it, it all falls downhill. I would imagine if, if that stops at the top and the, the headline artist is in a good mood almost all the time and super energetic, I would imagine you feel that even out at front of house. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I think that's, I think that's extremely true. Um, especially when it goes the other way, like you'll see your friends who, you know, and who are, you know, good, happy people. And you see them on a bad tour at a festival or something, and they are completely different. If they're unhappy, if things are going poorly, if they're all constantly struggling with personnel issues or with, with artist issues, <laughs> they don't even engage with you on the festival. They're just trying to get through the day every day. But if they know that as long as they do their best, that their artist is going to understand if they have problems, if there are issues, you know, if that's the, if that's the default, if that's the general personality, then it allows people to be friendly. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of these, these tough tours where you think that the artist is going to be somebody relatable and it turns out they're not who they appear to be either on TV or on stage, you can decide it. You'd be like, Oh, I thought this was going to be a great tour. They used to be my heroes and now I work for them and this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's, that's where the adage comes from. Don't work for your heroes. I have a hard time separating people's art from themselves. Sometimes Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, Like Louis CK. I think he yep. is absolutely hilarious. I, I love him. I love his stage persona. I love his TV show. But then when some of the news comes out about what he's like in real life, you're like, oh, man, now I got to figure out how to, yeah. to support his art without supporting him. Yeah, I have a hard this time is, with that. This is, this is where it's problematic to, to lift the veil so much as we do with constant connectivity and everybody being on you know, on stage and on, on the internet and on, uh, on everybody's radar all the time, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, you wouldn't see pictures of Led Zeppelin backstage staring into their phone. Right. Um, you know, you would see pictures of them doing cool shit and that was about it. People didn't document some groupies. Yeah. Yeah. People didn't document the boring stuff so much. You know, you might see it in a, bus window black and white bon jovi video of the fucking the hard scrabble life of the of the touring musician stuff like that but it was always so curated and Mm -hmm. and people were able to to have some say in what version of them you got to see but now if you see all of it then you get to see the shitty parts too you know i'm sure that some of the bands that i loved were not so great humans and yeah, because you could get away with so much more than I would imagine band, I mean, bands like, let's say, the Beastie Boys or Van Halen. They could do so many different things back then because they knew it wasn't going to end up on YouTube and be yeah. online forever. There's a, there, I was lucky enough last year to work on the, the Beastie Boys live show that they had filmed for the documentary that's coming out on Apple TV soon. And they go, they go into that. They talk about that. Talk about the the bad behavior and then then them growing up you know first they started off as a parody of these party boys and then they became the party boys and then they had (laughs) their own reckoning and their their honesty throughout the process is really quite enjoyable i'm not advertising for the show but if you like the band i think you're going to be happy with the uh with the documentary oh i'm waiting waiting with bated breath i'm a huge fan i would yeah, I, I certainly was beside myself to get to do that project. I am going to love and hate hearing all the all the terrible things that they used to do. I was sure they the misogyny they went, went rampant for a while, and I would hope that they all learned lessons. But they, they don't go into gory detail, but they're not. Uh, they're but they're honest about it. The end of my street at the end of my block is where the Beastie Boys studio was, where they did "Check Your Head" and ill communication like that's where they became a band again oh man right at the end of my fucking street that is awesome yeah <laughs> that's not anyway. the uh, the sound city 
No, no, okay. no. It was a studio after Paul's Boutique was a massive flop. Uh, they, the record company was just like, whatever, we don't care what you do. We're not going to, we're, we're not caring about you at all. So they left them alone. And so they got this studio in, uh, in Atwater Village and, and put a half pipe in it and a half court basketball court and be, and picked up their instruments again. And they just were left alone for a couple of years and then started becoming a, a band of musicians again instead of these crazy rappers and so they had that studio for a few years for probably 10 years i think one of my favorite albums by the bc boys is called the in sounds from way out and it wasn't one of their huge commercial successes yeah basically it was an album where everybody told them like oh you guys are uh you guys are great your parodies you're rapping you're rocking you're doing all this stuff but you guys aren't really playing your own instruments and the bc boys like oh yeah you don't think so yeah, they out an entire instrumental album, and it is amazing. It yeah, is, if I could have a soundtrack of my life, it's it's that wow. album. Wow, uh, I'll get that. It's called the In Sounds from Way Out, and it is absolutely this great background music where they're at their atmosphere. They're you can feel that it's them and you can feel that what they're saying through just their instruments. And they, they kind of showed everybody like, Hey, look, we're, we're not a one trick pony here. We're, we're not what you think we are. Yeah. So that was pretty amazing. You're good. You're going to love this doc. You're going to love the, the, the movie when it comes out. Downstairs. I have a, I still have my box of cassettes and I've got every single BC boys that I could get at the time. Nice. That was dude. The first tapes that I ever bought with my own money. First cassette tapes was I bought them both on the, at the same trip was raising hell run DMC and licensed to ill. Wow. And at the, and licensed to ill at the time I was going to Paul Revere middle school. So if you don't th- if you don't think we sang that in the fucking hallways every day, <laughs> Jesus! Every fucking time we got on a bus somewhere, it was. Yeah, here's a little story. Funny story about Chris Lose. I went to a BC Boys concert back in junior college. I got super drunk. It was at the Oakland Coliseum, and I didn't want to leave. So the, the date that I had brought with, she went home on the, on the BART the way we came. And I stayed and I found a, one of the box seats that, no, that had been left open. And I just kind of sat there and I watched the entire loadout. I was just <laughs> amazed. And I was just a theater kid at the time. And then finally, as some of the points were coming down, somebody found me and they tried to kick me out. And I was still very belligerent. And I'm like, I'm going to be the one kicking you out of here someday. <laughs> That's going to be me down there someday. And later on, when I was with Fleetwood, we actually went to the Oakland Coliseum and I got to stare at the box seat that I had gotten super drunk in. And, nice. And I, and I was. I was down there and I was that guy now. I didn't nice. kick anybody out, but it, yeah. it felt really good to come full circle. Yeah, I actually did something similar to that in uh, the mid aughts, like probably eh, early aughts, I guess probably 2002, 2003 when I was doing Weezer, there was a K rock contest for your school to win a concert by the offspring and Weezer. I think I'm pretty sure it was offspring. One of those five bands that K rock plays. And it was, a concert at Magic Mountain, uh, the Six Flags Park here, which is where I did my first rock shows, where I started being an LD back when I was 19 or something. And uh, so I got to go back to that same theater where I first operated a console, where I first hit a bump button for blinders and ACLs and got to go back there as a professional touring LD. And that that was a pretty nice feeling. Wow. You're like, Hey, I'm back. I'm just getting paid this time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also being able to go back to the Delta center, whatever it's called now in Salt Lake city and, and go back and bring in an arena show where I had first, where I'd seen my first arena shows, I think 
or at least worked my first arena shows as a as a local hand in my short stint in Salt Lake. What was the so, first concert you went to? The first actual big show I ever saw was because my parents didn't want me to see. They didn't want me going to concerts until I was eighteen because they didn't. It wasn't part of their scene. They didn't understand it. They just wanted to, you know, they wanted to protect me from the the sex, the drugs, the rock and the roll. I finally convinced them to that, that if I kept my grades up or something, that uh, that I should have the chance to disprove myself instead of them assuming that I wouldn't be be able to do it right. And I got to go to see. Uh, it was a Dodger Stadium, so the first thing I saw was a huge show, and it was. I went to see the Pixies. Uh, and it, but it was a insane bill. It was uh, Love and Rockets, and then the Pixies, and then the Cure. Wow! Um, on the Disintegration record, and there was a band called Shelley and Orphan uh, playing first. So that was that was my first big rock experience. How old were you? Must have been sixteen. So this is your first one without your parents. Uh, yeah. I mean, I had gone to club shows and stuff to see my friends' bands play and I had probably been playing club shows by that point as well, but no, had never seen a big, and it never even went with my parents to see a rock show. They weren't interested. It sounds like they knew that they were trying to protect you from this life. (laughs) They may, but they may have pushed me into it by disallowing it, made it so sexy that I couldn't resist it. You know, that's your own rebellion. Exactly. Were they conservative? Were they not just not into rock they're and pretty, roll? They... They're pretty conservative. Yeah. You know, my mom, the tapes that my mom had in her car was the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. One called Saturday Night Fiedler, which was the Boston Pops <laughs> with Arthur Fiedler doing the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Those, those are the ones that I remember. Barry Manilow and John <laughs> Davidson and shit. My dad liked, liked George Strait. My dad loved George Strait, too. I love George Strait, man. Amarillo by Morning. Amarillo by Morning is one of the most perfect songs ever written. Yeah. yeah. That guy is a, he, when he went out and did a greatest hits tour, he had to play two nights. Yeah. In every yeah. city. Not because, and each night was different. Right. Because he's got that many damn hits. Yeah. That, that you and I don't know. <laughs> A lot of other bands would just be like, well, we kind of, we clearly have to whittle this down to three hours, but yeah, George, no, he, no, I can't whittle this down. No, I think, I think the thing was that they had to play, you know, he was like, well, I'm going to play all the number one hits, but I've got 45 of them. So we're going to split this up over two nights. Something crazy <laughs> like that. About 30 of them are about drinking, but uh, 45. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't think he does. I don't not sure i'd have to look into that yeah i don't remember he's a very private guy he doesn't do a lot of interviews but he did do an npr interview a few years ago which is worth listening to all right i will definitely look into that he definitely doesn't have the legend the legendary habits of his predecessor george jones who is maybe one of the best rock and roll biographies uh i've ever read and when i say rock and rolls because that guy drank more than any rock star that I've ever heard of. Like the, the Molly crew stories are still trying to catch up to George Jones <laughs> and, and George Jones had hits in the, he had number one hits in the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and maybe in the odds before he passed away. That actually reminds me of one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you the most is that when I, go out and I talk to a lot of designers. I usually end up at a bar after a restaurant and we end up over drinks. Then I did a dry February where I wasn't drinking at all, which is often off-putting to some people. But for you, that wasn't a big deal because you are you are seven years dry? Is that, is that accurate? Seven, seven years sober, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Uh, that's a that's a rare entity these days. It's really inspiring to hear that. How did that come about? Uh, through tragedy, as <laughs> as it often does. Um, you know, it it, uh, it was fun for a lot of years, and I thought that it was you know it was one of the things that was attractive to me about the business in the first place was that atmosphere, that fun, the party, the the sort of no rules, and you know I can. 
I can get away with doing this at work and it's fun and it's just the way everybody does. Um, but like a lot of people, uh, I had trouble managing it and, and I always had trouble managing it from the time I was a teenager. Um, the, the off switch never seemed to work very well. And, uh, and, but it was, I was maintaining and I was still getting good jobs and, doing fairly well and never really getting into that much trouble, never causing too much, uh, harm to, to other people, uh, plenty to my, to myself, but I never, never ended up in jail or in the hospital and never put anybody else in either of those places. So, so I thought that I was doing fine, um, you know, that I was managing, but then, uh, what eventually happened is I, it, started taking priority and other th things started taking a back seat, um, including the work. And, uh, I've always been very career oriented, always been, always put work as a priority, sometimes often to a fault, uh, to other things in personal life. But, uh, but then it started taking a back seat to the drinking. Um, and so that really took me off the top of my game and, that is when, uh, that's when I lost a gig, not because I not, not, it wasn't, you know, you drink too much. You can't work for us anymore. It was, you're not at the level of LD that we want because we're, you know, we want to keep going and you're not, uh, you're not performing as well as we need you to. And so I lost a gig and right then and there is when I took that option off the table. And, uh, and it was a, it was a process, um, you know, it was difficult to, to face up to all those realities and, and, uh, figure out how to do socialization again, because it had been a part of my social life. It had been a cornerstone of that for all of my adult life. Um, and it is the natural place to end up when you're talking with friends and, and something to do, uh, to, to, you know, something, I guess, a, a way to set the scene and a, in a way to, you know, this, the social lubricant. So that's definitely helps out when you're just hanging around bullshit. But yeah, it wasn't until I tried to stop drinking that I realized how much of a prop it is to just hold a drink. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of times where I'm standing around and other people are drinking and I'm not, and I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of those behaviors that are, that are just really, you don't think about it. And that's sort of what a habit is something you do without thinking about. It's been an interesting thing to do, especially now that I'm a few years in and have started, you know, have worked with a bunch of more people and met a bunch of people. Now that I, now I meet people who never knew me to have a drink, which is a funny thing for me to think about because I identified myself by that. That must've um, been the hardest part to give up is that it is part of your identity. Yeah. And I think that that was maybe one of the healthiest things about giving it up was that I was forced to strip it back down. I was forced to, to, to peel off all the, all the layers that I had put up and strip it back down to the bare wood and, and start over with, with who I was with my efforts. Okay. Did you do it on your own or did you seek help? Uh, I had friends that I leaned on for it. I went w went through AA at the beginning and have since cooled off on that a little bit. Um, I still go to meetings now and again. I'm just I'm just not super active. Well, touring is a convenient excuse, is <laughs> if I if I'm being honest. But yeah, I don't uh, I, I don't go to to a whole lot of meetings. Took it on. I, I went through it at the beginning because I wanted to have something to fall back on for when it got tough, you know, when I needed something and, and it never got tough for me, but I don't know if that's because I had gone through the, the program, but it's definitely, it's, it's definitely a hugely wonderful resource for, uh, for anybody suffering. And I think that the thing that one of the things that helped me out about it most was 
going and hearing other people talk about the same sort of shit that I thought was my own failing and feeling it made me feel less alone to be in that group and to be in that room of people who I wouldn't have otherwise talked to and hear them be vulnerable and honest. And, and that made me feel less alone, which I think we can all relate to because I think that what we do in our business, the biggest, best product of it is making people feel less alone. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever, whenever I'm out there doing a show, uh, every single show, I, at least uh, a couple of times I'll turn around uh, at a point when I have a little bit of a time between cues, I'll turn around and watch the crowd watch and, you know, just kind of take measure of what's going on around me and seeing people, seeing that group of people enjoying something together and being on the same level. And, uh, it's, you know, sometimes it will get me pretty choked up. That's really important. Yeah. I, I, I think it's the, the crux of what we do. Yeah. I would imagine that when you got let go or just not asked back, it would have been really easy for a different person to go, well, it's clearly not because of my drinking. It's because they're, they're just an asshole and blame somebody else for that failure. But somehow you were able to actually look at yourself and go like, no, clearly I did something that made me unsuitable for that position. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had actually... I was acutely aware that, it, that I was, that my condition is deteriorating. Um, even though, even at the same time being in total denial of it, uh, I was still quite aware that, uh, that I was not doing very well and that I, that a change was probably needed, but I was going to be damned if I instituted it and I was going to get away with my behavior as long as possible before I had to face up to it. And so once I was faced with it uh, by a couple of very honest friends um, who said, you know, hey, this is, this is what I see that's going on with you. And I was like, okay, yep. Oh, that that's, has that's such totally a right. major influence too, because uh, just even a few years ago, there would have been a team of people around you cheering you on. And you're like, nah, look at Dan. He can, he can drink a fifth of Jack and still do a show. What a... Yeah. Yeah. And that's champion. And that's, that's really one of the things I, I, you know, I don't like regret because, uh, I, I I don't think that it's super helpful. Um, you know, we're all figuring this out as we go along and, and, uh, and we try and take cues from other people who are, who we think are doing it better than we are. Um, so I don't see regret as very useful. Uh, but I, if I, if I had to say that I had regrets, one of them would be being that example for a younger generation who saw me at front of house at a festival with a bottle of wine or a, you know, cooler full of beer and just having six beers during a show and having to run and take a piss during the, uh, the encore break or something like that, because, you know, and just being a, you know, <laughs> just being irresponsible, honestly. Like I, I, would, I, I hate that some guys and girls probably saw that and thought, well, this is a way you can be at this level because it's not an acceptable way to be. Uh, and it was irresponsible of me to, to, to not only be that way, but also to be that example to anybody coming up. One of the hardest ones for me was coming up was knowing how many deals get sealed over a few drinks. And it yeah. used to be, a, especially coming up in Vegas, where you don't actually talk about business while you're doing business. You actually talk about business at the bar afterwards. Yep. Yep. And I'm finally at an age now where I can just realize that you still should go to the bar, but you need to have the self-control to not allow even uh, a glass of water or anything like that turn into one drink, turn into five drinks, turn into an all-night binge. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah and you, should, you should go hang out with your friends and you should drink some form of liquid with them 
to seal the deal. But it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a fifth of Jack anymore. It doesn't even have to be alcoholic at all. It could be no whatever no. whatever you fancy. And I'm I'm getting really good now at just going up to the bartender and you're like, hey, I want uh, a soda. Bitters and soda. Yeah, yeah. It, Europe has been on the non-alcoholic beer kick for much uh, much more earnestly than we have uh the bars will always have one but and it's starting to catch on more so in the states now uh have you seen these these non-alcoholic spirits these distilled uh non-alcoholic drinks there's a few brands of them one i know is called seed lip and so it's they're basically these herbal distilled drinks that aren't alcoholic but have these intense flavors that give bartenders a different palate to work with uh, that don't have alcohol in them so they can still make interesting frothy uh, expensive drinks <laughs> they can they can still get the sober people into their bar and liberate them of all their pds uh, in many fancy shaky ways but just not serving alcohol. I hate to say, but I'm I'm their client. I want the sort of guy Great. who still wants the ceremony of a cocktail. I still want the glass. I still want the ice. I yeah. still want to look like I'm drinking alcohol. Yeah. Without being wasted. I I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I, I'm I'm that client right there. They're I want the, exactly that. The mocktails are uh, are on the rise all throughout the all, all throughout the country. It's kind of kind of neat. I <laughs> I never had that habit when I was a when I was drinking alcohol. I didn't go for the flavor and the ceremony of it. I went for the effect. <laughs> uh, so it's I'm not really interested. You know, I, I <laughs> drank a lot of the vodka and soda. Pop cap. <laughs> yeah, I like favorite drink was the next one. <laughs> um, it wasn't necessarily for the for anything to do with no, the flavor. The I didn't want to wait for the guy to make the fucking thing. Get it in me. <laughs> Sadly, yes. Yes. Yeah, so, no. I'm. I still want the ceremony. And it's because most of my uh, drinking takes place around clients, and sometimes when I'm not drinking with them or as much as them they they treat it as a as a contest They're like what can i say or what can i do to get you to start drinking with me yeah if, if i have done the ceremony then i've done everything except the ingesting of the alcohol there's 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 all sorts of uh all sorts of psychological things going on there i think uh that uh, that we could go on for <laughs> that would be a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, like it is important. I still do go to the bar. Sometimes I, I just leave a lot earlier. Once, once the conversation starts to get circular, then I'm out, but I do try and go down and, and, and see my guys on my, my crew guys and my, my other touring cohorts. I try and see them on a social level. You know, uh, we are social beings, especially when there's, when there is business to be talked about, you know, I'll sit there and drink soda water, have a NA beer. But one of the scariest things for me uh, as a designer when giving it up was where's my creativity? What's going to happen to that? And I was scared shitless because, because I also gave up smoking weed at the same time. I, I went, went completely cold Turkey on anything that was mind altering like that aside from caffeine and nicotine. Nicotine took me about a year to give up smoking and, uh, you know, caffeine, I still do, but I was really worried about my creativity and it took a little while to come to the realization that the creativity, the ideas weren't at the bottom of the bottle, but they were, it did take a different sort of process and some other sorts of tools workflow wise for me to get them onto the paper and out of wherever they come from within myself. You had to completely retool your workflow then. Pretty much, pretty much looking back on it now. I don't, I don't know if there, I don't think anything has been necessarily more or less creative, but I think my product now is definitely better because I don't get so I don't get as easily self-satisfied as I did when I was drinking. I'm not able to, to, you know, 
<laughs> congratulate myself with a with a beer and then be more easily impressed with myself after that you know well, that's now very I'm... profound you're kind of <laughs> going to the bottle for your own self accolades like well i did uh i put 40 pieces of lights on uh 10 sticks of trust you deserve yeah. a beer. yeah yeah <laughs> interesting so now i just now i just beat myself up on on the minutiae you know <laughs> Now you're just much harder on yourself. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, well, no, because I was always that hard on myself as well. I just uh, would deal with it in a different way. So uh, here's some good news for you. A lot of the creativity that you're looking for, you can credit uh, caffeine for. Caffeine has been proven to increase creativity, it's scientific. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I don't have to give that one up then. Yeah. So in fact, uh, so I do this thing every month where I give up something. Yeah. And I was going to, I was considering caffeine to be one of them because I have a fairly, a fairly uh, healthy uh, energy drink addiction. Oh. And, which is not good. It's not the best. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that anybody should take that on. No. And I was going to give up caffeine. So I read a book on caffeine and there is a lot of evidence to show that caffeine by itself, not the energy drink and everything else that surrounds the caffeine, yep. but it is beneficial to our creativity and it is beneficial to our, our brain flow and our brain function. Which book was that? It's called Caffeine. Okay. I will send it to you. I'll probably put the, I'll put the link to it in the notes. Okay. I think I heard a podcast about this the other day. I think it was on uh, maybe Fresh Air, Terry Gross or something like that. The author, I think, was on there. The tea houses of Europe were the, the hotbed for the, was it not the Industrial Revolution, but for the, for the yes. Renaissance? Was it? Industrial Revolution? Was it the Industrial Revolution? Uh, There's a which. lot of evidence that shows <laughs> that the more caffeine a country consumes, the more economic growth is correlated well, but it's, it was it was the it was the fact that people were sitting around all jacked up on caffeine, uh, sitting around the same place together, talking yeah. about things. Yep. But they weren't getting fucked up, getting drinking alcohol, and then talking about dumb shit in circular ways. They were actually going forward with more with more things and getting more work done with the caffeine. Yep. Well, I'm glad I don't have to give that one up. Although, I, I, with 12 months in a year, there's <laughs> there's got to be it's you've got to have one month where it's gonna it's gonna come up on you, and that's gonna be the one, right? That you've got to give up. <laughs> sugar is my next one. That's on my list too. Refined sugar is the one you got to look out for. I know because I munch candy throughout a show. Yeah, I, I am eating gummy bears or hard candies or. <laughs> something throughout the show so it's so, tough then foods play a three-hour show whoo you know a long time to be sitting there <laughs> and i can sit there and drink coffee but then two hours later i'm on the bus like yep. oh god <laughs> so for anybody who's still listening after the full hour what would be your advice to people who are sitting at home now and they don't have the same outlet that we used to have that are going to the bottle now that, well, I'm bored out of my mind and nobody's here. I'm just going to go drink. That's how I'm going to pass the day. Ah, man. I, you know, obviously I can't recommend that that's a thing to do. It seems like that, that's sort of situational um, saying, you know, like, Hey, how can I be sober until things go back to normal? Because it's not, to me, it's not that it's a, it's a bigger change than that. It's uh you know, it's a, it's a life change. Um, for me, the thing that made it easiest was not having it as an option because the thing that was most stressful to me when I was still drinking was worrying about having too much and worrying, worrying where that line was and not crossing that line. So I would have a drink and then say, Oh no, okay. I'm only going to have one more. And then I'd have one more and then I'd be like, okay, but maybe I can have a third one. You know, has it been an hour? Maybe I can do that. Maybe I'll just have one, you know, and I would just spin myself out about that. Once I took the option off the table and didn't see that as a, as a, a go-to anymore, there was no stress. I dropped so much anxiety just by not worrying about it, not having to worry about it that, I didn't have as much to be stressed about to 
you know, to get away from, you know, meditation is a part of the AA thing. And I was terrible at it. I was never good at it. But then in December of last year, I went and took a a course on meditation because I had never heard anybody talk about how meditation screwed up their life. And (laughs) I'd only ever heard about the benefits of it. So I thought, you know what, this warrants more investigation. So I went to a non-program affiliated uh, meditation course. And and so I've been doing that uh, every day. I certainly stopped spinning my wheels as much. It's been, it's been quite helpful and you've got the time to do it right now. So that's, that's something I can definitely yeah, recommend. <laughs> you kind of funnel that your cravings into meditation instead. That's- it's, you know, I, I'm sure I know that you must have read a lot about uh, wellness and presence and, and uh, you know, the benefits of just sitting quietly. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's not necessarily about clearing your mind the thing that always got me about meditation was i can't get my mind clear well no that's not what it's supposed to do that's not what your mind is supposed to do no your mind doesn't do that (laughs) no so as soon as i you know did did this class and, and found some stuff you know like got talked through a bit of it i was like oh all right then that's not so bad so all I have to do is sit here and shut up and not worry about it. All right, cool. I invite anybody to to investigate that meditation as a uh, as a generality and find their own uh, way that it might help them. Be it a breathing one or a guided meditation or a I don't know. I don't. It depends on how fucking hippy dippy you are. I'm not very hippy dippy, so. <laughs> That is great advice. <laughs> You're not going to find a crystal on my shelf. No essential oils at the Hadley house, huh? No. no. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dan. I really appreciate it. This has been, this has been liberating. It's really good to hear your, some of your philosophies. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure to talk to you, man. Absolutely. Talk to you soon.